Where does your food come from? Delicious, amazing, fulfilling food? In the not-so-distant future, Cellar Agriculture will take traditional farm food and change it to be produced in a lab at scale. How will this affect what we eat? Its challenges, the rapid development, and the massive implications of cell ag on supply chain, and more, are all topics we get into today with our guest, Ahmed Khan, founder and editor of Cell Agri, the internet's premier cell ag news and insight reporting website. He is also one of the founders of Cellular Agriculture Canada. He knows the past, present, and future of cell like no one. If you like this type of long-form content, please subscribe, like, and comment because every bit helps. Chapters and timestamps in the video as well as below. Let's stay curious to learn about cell ag in this episode of the Learn with Lowell Show. How, when you're doing your research for your projects, do you sift through and kind of separate fact from fiction? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Lowell. Um, that is a great question when it comes to figuring out transparency there. Typically, because the role that cell ag plays in its ecosystem, one of the key communication players Companies and investors generally like to talk to me about what's going on with them in terms of what they can share, everything that they can share, they do share with me, um, obviously, because startups are are still developing their technologies as well. It can be a challenge, but for the most part, whatever they can share in terms of what's what they've officially disclosed, somewhere with investors and their concerns and thoughts about this ecosystem, they do share that with me, thankfully, and it helps me put, put together this bigger puzzle and figure out all the different pieces that goes on in that to make this field viable. Mm -hmm. But um, so I've talked to a lot of startups on my own, as you know, and I even in terms of like the mechanisms that they talk to investors or uh, release to the public when they're being like completely open, there, there's usually like a line like demarcating like what is actually happening and what they say is happening. So are like, how do you differentiate that line? Either they're saying stuff to you. Um, I imagine it's not like always 100% what's happening is my, is my point. So then how do you handle that? Yeah, yeah that can be a challenge. Typically, it, it, it's very helpful that I'm in touch with a lot of different companies that mm. all say different things that contrast with each other. So if you have two companies saying exact opposite things, or you typically try to find some middle ground there about, all right, Company A says they're doing this, but company B says that's totally not possible at all. Company C says, well, if, they, if, if company A did X, Y, Z instead, then some middle ground could be possible. So about putting all those different pieces together mm. to figure out, okay, company A is really saying they've done that. What could that actually mean in terms of where they really are today? And that's how you piece it together. For, for example, um, one one of the key one of the interesting things I recently saw was how are we going to continue scaling up this field? And some companies say they're more further ahead than others, and some are being more um, open about that. But others are being a bit more conservative about their timelines and approach. And it's about all right, how can we compare and contrast these two companies? Which to me were at pretty similar stages. If you if you find the middle ground there, you'll figure out where this field can be the this pace of this field can be growing and what this technology might frankly actually be. That makes sense. That uh, honestly, cause you're, so it sounds like when you're in it, you're, you're able to kind of like, uh, like fact check people, you know, it's like, uh, our, our serum is like a hundred percent cheaper to make with our new proprietary process. Like the best you can get is like, you know, 20% better. Um, and exactly. if it was a hundred percent better, I imagine like they would just be peddling that IP to, to everyone else versus like keeping it entirely in house. So that's interesting. Yep, that exactly. You can, like, corroborate it. <laughs> I mean, what I will say is many of the companies in the field, they on the, on the idea of IP, they're obviously working in-house developing their own technology solutions. Then you see all these newer startups coming in right now with their own 
specific solution for one part of the IP or one part of the supply chain. And they're getting a lot of, and, and they, they usually report themselves that they're, they're getting a lot of interest from companies for their technology. If they if they have specific niche technology as a supply chain player for one part of the wider IP ecosystem, getting so much traction, what does that say about what's going on in-house in some of these companies? Not saying it's not working, but maybe the more effective ways that some of these niche specialized players are able to address more than others. That makes sense. The, um, do you, I've, I've always wondered, is there going to come a time where there's going to be like a McDonald's type company that just license a bunch of IPs and then builds a bunch of uh, microbreweries across the America, for instance, and then um, you have, you know, you know, the sausage, the, the chicken, you know, all these different players that have been building the individual excellence come together to a point and then you can franchise it from there. I've been wondering if stuff like that's been happening. I don't know if, if, if someone's doing that, I don't know if, if it is, you please tell me about it. But uh, I've been wondering it, like, when is the, like, there's been like a diversification in, in terms of what you're talking about where people are specializing, but at the same time, there's then going to be like a contraction of IP to like deliver it somewhere, I think. Can you elaborate on that? Do you mean the idea that you want to start a, fra a franchise somewhere and you want to go to all the individual players to put something together? I mean, more like, like, uh, like along those lines. Well, in the McDonald's uh, analogy, it's like um, there's one company that's bought up enough for the IP, and then they fran like the McDonald's corporation that franchises it to people below them. To that's how they make money, I think, if I understand it. So, like um, in that case, there's like one conglomerate buying stuff up, either deliver uh, like buying up, acquiring to have like a, a suite of technologies to allow them to have like a McD like a whole store's worth of uh, cell ag or plant based um, uh, food, um, and then you know franchising it and the like microbreweries across America. Um, yeah. That would be a really cool idea. The idea of having an end-to-end -end solution where you, you can go to one company or one player saying, I want to start my own cell-cultured meat company or my own cell-cultured anything, dairy, leather, you name it. I want my I want my end-to-end -end solution set up over here. Who can I go to? That would be a really cool, that would be a really cool play for the future. As far as I'm aware of, there's one early stage startup called Animal Alternative Technologies that's looking to explore that concept. But that re that relies on having essentially a whole supply chain right there where you can just pick, all right, if I want this facility to do meat, all right, let's, let's, add, let's combine all my different options here from cells, cell culture media, bioreactor, um, ship that to where you want that facility. Or if it's going to be milk or leather instead, all right, go 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 to different players along my end-to-end -end solution, pick the best parts, and send that to that location. That could be really cool, but I think it might be a bit way away still till the field yeah. has matured to the point we can do that. But that would be awesome. Yeah, I think I imagine it's like a, a like a good five seven years from now, uh, before we start seeing a consolidation. Um, that's my guess. I don't know. That's just me like reading your newsletter and just like watching stuff. Um, yeah, appreciate that. I mean, we have we have seen a bit of consolidation so far in this relatively early ecosystem. The first acquisition happened end of 2020, actually. That Israeli company called, formerly called Meat Tech 3D, now called Stakeholder Foods, at the time acquired a Belgian um, cell cultured fat company called Piece of Meat, and that was the first ever acquisition in this ecosystem. And then in 2021, we saw in Asia Pacific. The seafood, the seafood player Shiok Meats acquire the first red meat player in Singapore called Gaia Foods. And then earlier this year, we saw the first acquisition in the U.S. 
Culture Decadence, a company from the Midwest, actually, not too far away from you, got acquired by Upside Foods, previously Memphis Meats in California. Even though this field is early, it, it, it does suggest that there are some early signs of maturation that players can acquire each other. So that that, that is promising. Yeah. For some of the ones I saw, I was I was curious the there's a difference so there's a, there's um acquire and there's aqua hiring. And in a couple of cases it seems like like a lot of times people will leave a startup or they'll leave their PhD and they do like a like a startup their own, their own startup, and they'll do it for about like two to like two and a half years, and then they usually will get bought up by another company and become like a like a you know high ranking director or something like that. And so which is slightly different than like building something and having it acquired. I wonder how, ma how many of these uh, acquisitions are more just aqua hires uh, with a little bit of IP sprinkled on. Really interesting question. As far as I'm aware, um, all those acquisitions I described, there was some IP behind that as well. Mm -hmm. um, some of those startups were a lot earlier than others along the timelines. So it could be interesting to explore that. One, one acquisition I should, should mention as well was the first acquisition by a meat corporate, actually. Brazilian meat conglomerate, JBS, actually acquired a Spanish startup, um, relatively early stage one called Biotech Foods, end of last year as well. Yeah. So, th so things are starting to jump around. And from your investment really? report, there, every year, uh, your investment report gets like bigger and bigger and bigger. Like at first it was like the four, if I remember it right, it was like four panels and there's like maybe like 10 uh, companies in each one. And now it's like so small that when I look at it, you have to like zoom in, which is fun. Um, just to see the, <laughs> the development uh, and over the last like five years what, that you've been doing it. Um, is there is there a sector in particular that you think is like positioning itself well in terms of um, getting money in and actually utilizing it to build something like a foundation? that you perceive as being something that could be like a McDonald's or like a, uh, or, or like a, like a, I think it's, it's not called Memphis meats, but no Tyson chicken, like something that's like a, or like a, an impossible burger. I think impossible burger is like, uh, like the one that's really done a good job so far. Like it's everywhere. Everyone's like actually able to taste it. But for a lot of the other ones are like kind of more niche. So I'm curious, like, is there a sector that's building itself well to integrate into the existing supply chain when it comes to food? Thanks for your feed. Thanks for taking a look at and your feedback on that investment report. Um, you're right. When we first began tracking the investment landscape at Cellagri, it was a handful of companies, so it's easy to have those big bar graphs. But then, as the field kept on growing and growing and growing, um, it got it got a bit smaller to the point now where you have to have separate graphs altogether to separate the cell cultured meat players in the cell agriculture food field and also what we call the acellular agriculture food food players, but, but but that's more commonly known as precision fermentation these days. Um, so now we've now to separate that to highlight how much the, this ecosystem has expanded. Um, within that though, to answer, to answer one of the earlier questions, to, the sector that could be very interesting to look at for that model you just described in terms of, you, you mentioned Tyson chickens, that sounds more like partnerships and different distribution possibilities. That precision fermentation, acellular agriculture side really has shown a way forward for that. Um, Perfect Day is a company in the US doing soft culture dairy protein, specifically whey protein. And they first launched um, commercially in 2020 after doing a test trial in, in 2019. And uh, yeah, in, in all through 2022, it's been incredible. They've, they've announced partnerships with so many different brands for ice cream, chocolate, 
protein powder, even chocolate bars. And the way that you're making partnerships, that's really shown a way to market and a, a great way for success for companies looking at doing protein, um, animal protein like that specifically. And it's, and because of that, it's not, reflect, it's, not, it's not surprising that many of the first big investments in this field have all gone to companies doing things similar to Perfect Day, um, precision fermentation proteins or acellular agriculture to date. Perfect Day is still one of the top funded, if not the top funded company in the cell agriculture food ecosystem still because of that. Hmm. Is there, um, even now after so many years, is there an element of cellular agriculture? You know, I'll even like throw in like a uh, plant-based uh, food um, in that umbrella um, that you still find magical. You know, like there's like the Arthur C. Clarke uh, uh, quote where it's like anything sufficiently advanced looks like magic. Um, and you get, to, you get to dig deep on so many different areas. So is there something that's still magical to you, uh, no matter how many times you hear it or learn about it? Ooh, that's magical. Um, two things come to mind there, personally. First one is the idea of um, seafood. Um, we have so many different types of um, seafood species that we consume right around the world. That they come, your company's doing something different there. Get this bit excited, like, oh yeah, people in this people in this part of the world consume that seafood specifically. This is a great idea for a company that's actually based over there. Um, I just find that quite exciting because it's the idea that this field is expanding around the world, and you have scientists and entrepreneurs based in different parts of the world figuring out, all right, how can I apply this technology to make our food system more sustainable where I am to help to help um, make our system more sustainable over there. So that usually gets me quite excited. Um, the other thing, the other, the other idea is, I know I'm a big fan of ice cream. I always like the idea of having different ice cream flavors out there and, and other dairy products. I, I, I agree with the, the, well, I agree with both, but definitely the, the seafood thing, uh, the one in particular, especially with the, you know, I mean, like the Alaskan crab fishermen can't even fish this year, well, crab, um, this year because of how de like depleted it's so like they lost like uh, a billion crabs in alaska or something like that like they literally aren't able to do their crab fishing this year and so you have all those people not making money you have warehouses a supply chain that's now been upended i wonder if you know you could see i, I could imagine uh, a seafood uh, startup just going like partnering with the government who's trying to keep these people afloat and with the the people to build the uh like the the fermentation areas in those giant warehouses so like 30 to 40 percent of it's already built in terms of like space they just need the the vats and stuff like that and at the same time i wonder if they even have vats up there because i think they have a lot of alcohol consumption so that they could probably like <laughs> repurpose these things but i could see uh especially with seafood as like the food web in the ocean is being very fragile uh, co uh complementing and supplementing these areas that are already part of the su supply chain with uh the same type of mechanisms but instead of like going out trawling for the crabs they're in a brewery in a in a vat uh, making it that way do you how do you see um just like isolating on that um seafood uh sell agriculture seafood um working with the limitations that are now being put in place in terms of like what the, the actual ocean can do like it's just an, it's a unique opportunity in and of itself um because i don't think there's any other there's like the novelty ones where it's like i'm gonna make woolly mammoth steak or something like i can see that that's kind of fun or like i'm gonna make blue whale it's like that's like the, you know you can always get someone who's gonna do that um, but there's, I think there's a lot of chickens, there's a lot of steak, there's a lot of all these different animals. And so there's, there's reasons to cheaper, whatever, but with seafood there, there, it does seem like a very unique opportunity 
because because the oceans are not going they're not doing very well right now so like how do you how do you see that playing out moving forward and how um yeah what are your thoughts on that in general yeah seafood is great really good opportunity there unlike you know cows or chicken most of the seafood we consume um most of that is not farmed for the most part and many of these more um popular animal species that are that have been almost overfished to extinction cannot be cannot be farmed in aquaculture because we haven't figured out how to do it or they're just too big so cell culture seafood is a big opportunity there and really interesting to see how these players look to work with um, conventional sea the conventional seafood industry to make sure that um, conventional seafood players are not left behind what you mentioned right now for Alaska using this converting those facilities instead of being for crab fishing how about cell culturing crab meat mm-hmm. that could be a really interesting way of integrating existing infrastructure to inf- existing infrastructure to work with the local industry make sure that this is still going to be a seafood hub yes perhaps produced differently but to complement whatever comes from the ocean yeah, comes from the ocean because if you in- integrate this technology it's possible that the ocean environments may be able to recover and those seafood creatures and the seafood animals that you that may have been overfished can come back to some sustainable level It'll be, I think, I think there are a lot of opportunities there to work with existing governments and infrastructure players for that reason. But it has to be it's based on the government reception, then also the local industry reception that you see this as a way of complementing what you're already doing instead of as this, instead of viewing it as a threat that will replace you down the line. That communication needs to happen and be done correctly. Yeah, I, th- I think it's like uh, in the Midwest, we have uh, agriculture co ops all over the place. Where people own uh, portions of farms or the por- like portions of the percentage of what comes out of farms, so I can see something similar to that where they own a component of the factory. So it's not just they're building it to eventually replace them. They are they are literally a part of the future. I can see that going really really well. Um, also, I think it's I think in terms of the startup side, uh, I think the limitation is a lot of the startups now. Uh, and you know this more than me. They're very much science led. They're, they don't really have like the business mavericks, you know, thinking like how to integrate everything and, 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 and um, produce it in a marketable way. I don't think there's a lot of those type of people. I'm going to say not yet. So you, you, you're, you're spot on there. If you're an early stage company wanting to grow meat or seafood or any of these products directly from cells, you need, you're going to need to have a ton of scientists, also some engineers on board as well to figure out how you can make this at a larger scale. From scientists, if you're playing with cells, you're going to need your, you know, stem cell biologists, your molecular biologists, figuring out how to how to make the cells grow. Then you also need your food scientists down the down this pathway as well, right? To make a food product out of these cells you're growing, and then of course some engineers. But you're right. Eventually, as these companies keep on growing and move from an R and D startup essentially to more of an actual food business or a, a, any other animal product business. You're going to have to need some more business people on board from business dev to marketing to sales, all the way to a strong C-suite that, that understand that ecosystem you're entering right now. I think I think we'll start to see that a lot more as companies look to commercialize. Yeah. And I think uh, just like touching back on the crab thing, if it, right now crab fishermen, they only really work for like three months and then they're not making money for the rest of the year. Usually, and I, I would actually need someone to come on the show. If there's someone in, out there listening to this who knows someone in that field, let invite invitation open. But um, I'm pretty sure they work for three months and they usually like contract. I've known some contractors that'll make like a hundred grand in three months. 
but then they usually have like government um they're like on medicaid or something for the rest of the year because they're making no money and it like taxes like burn a lot of it and so instead of making a, like a high amount of money for a, a short amount of time and then basically being a government subsistence for the rest of the year to some extent depending on your budgeting abilities um they could be producing year-round and they could be producing for the whole uh you know really anywhere depending on like the shelf life of the, the material um i think that there's a lot of advantages even in terms of complementing like here like for these three months we can do this or maybe they get one month but the next 12 months they could be working in a in a shop or something like that which is even not even even more nice when you think about the, the weather up there like uh they literally make shows about how horrible it is in terms of just like the deadliest catch yeah that, that's a really good good point there um with cell culture technology you don't have to rely on fishing seasons to do your main work for that crunch time three-month season let's say you could consistently produce the food you need all year round and also work all year round to manufacture or produce that so definitely could help definitely could help on that side on that side there um on the idea of seafood i was just thinking you, you know that saying if you're in a landlocked um, state or country don't eat this don't have the local sushi there because there's no yeah. fresh body no body of water over there with cell culture seafood or cell cultured foods foods in general you can take a step back and produce your build your facility in that landlocked state or that country and produce fresh seafood locally just like that it's uh one of the key things you could do with this field you can have fresh seafood with no ocean nearby yeah i think that's uh it's it's one of the unique abilities of so like the distributed nature of it uh it makes like we're talking about like you know seafood in the midwest and like oh wow that's really neat you could have something that you could trust but imagine if there's like a super volcano that goes off and now like or like a, a war in ukraine and now like 10 percent of the grain in the world can't be supplied um this type of technology it you what, you, you cut it off they'll just build one <laughs> a neighborhood over and like sure there's an investment cost but there's like i mean just looking at wisconsin because uh i visited it a lot and um, there's a lot of microbreweries out here. Like you could easily, with with uh, uh, you know, add, add the right incentives and stuff like that, or the right partnerships, have so many microbreweries just translated in a in a matter of like days. Um, kind of like World War II thing, where they they took a factory that was making screws and made it into tanks, and like like you know, a factory up a week and down in Rockford, uh, Rockford, Illinois. Um, so you could, you could have stuff like that like translating over. That's one of the things I really like about Salag. It's that it takes out that huge burden of raising something up. So if there is like a distribute like we've all lived through COVID. like we've heard of these you know chip supply shortages and stuff like that i don't think i don't think there's much that uh cell ag would need to keep producing even if there was a distribution in terms of global supply it, uh, but then um i mean you'd be able to answer that more than me is there is there a unique element like i think one of the elements of chips other than just like having like the manufacturing which is really diff difficult to do um you also need like rare earth metals there isn't anything unique in terms of the material for cell ag, right? Like they just have to get like boat, like the, the, the serum material, petri dishes, uh, equipment, but I don't think there's anything like mm -hmm. rare earth metal, like 1% of the, uh, on the planet found like really rare. Right. Um, quite, quite, quite a few cool ideas you just mentioned there, Lowell. Um, we talk about cell agriculture and growing food or any other products directly from cells. When we talk about the benefits of it, we usually refer to, you know, environmental sustainability, public health implications, um, potential public health implications, and animal wealth and improved animal welfare. 
a fourth benefit for this field that wasn't really talked about before the pandemic was food security and having a reliable source of food being able to be produced locally. Um, it, food security wasn't really a topic that was spoken about too much in Europe or North America prior to COVID, but for the first time, many people saw empty grocery store shelves for the first time because of a lack of resiliency in food supply chains to make sure that food got to you. With cell agriculture, like you just mentioned, you, you could produce that food locally anywhere and everywhere on earth or even in outer space really. And so that's one of the real reasons why there's a lot of interest for this field from across Asia, whether it's in Singapore, Japan, or across the Middle East for that ability to increase, res improve resiliency in our food supply system and ensure places that rely on heavily on food imports can have some food security without without um, fear of food loss or lack of food availability should there be a crisis in food supply chains that we're that we're seeing seeing right now with the crisis. Mm -hmm. the, um... In terms, oh, go ahead. Sorry. In terms of what you mentioned right now about ingredients um, you would need to produce these food products. Um, you, you touched on that to, to, to grow cells to produce to become meat, dairy, or any other animal product you'd like. You would need you you need the right nutrient formulation for the cells to grow. And based on what different companies are working on, that they're looking to optimize that nutrient broth to be as to be animal free and in, inexpensive and easily scalable. The different companies right now are, are exploring using plant ingredients to, to produce those cells. Other ones are exploring, all right, cells need growth factors, ingredients to help them grow, and those can be and those are currently costly. How can we find um, alternatives to those that are more affordable from plants or from algae or just using recombinant proteins from other microorganisms? And so right now we're figuring out the best way to produce pr produce that still. But once you once you figure out the optimal um, cell culture medium formulation, including the growth factors, the hormones, and the other components you need to help the cells grow and make them believe they're still inside the animal, um, that 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 will be addressed. In terms of, <clears throat> like you just mentioned, rare earth metals, um, I'm not sure if you have an analogy for that just yet for this ecosystem, besides looking at growth factors, making sure we can bring the cost down of that. Because typically when you want to grow cells at the farm at the academic lab scale or the pharmaceutical industry, an ingredient they use to help the cells grow is called FBS, fetal bovine serum. That is costly, um, derived from animals and inconsistent from batch to batch. If you want to scale this field, you can't use that. So that's why you're looking at all these alternatives like plants, microorganisms, or recombinant proteins for those key ingredients that that fetal bovine serum or currently provides for cells in the pharmaceutical or academic scale. Yeah, um, and thanks for, for breaking that down. The, uh, you, I think you have a very analytical mind. So I'm curious when you when you look at the different ways to, to uh, move away from uh, bovine serum, is there one that you like? Like if you were, I mean, if you were a consumer of, of seafood and you knew that they were using a specific type, is there one that you favor for, for whatever reason? I want to answer this a different way. So um, it's less so, for, less so from the consumer perspective, but more so for integrating the existing food supply chains. Some companies are exploring the idea of growing these key growth factors to, produce, to add to the media formulation in, in crops. 
it's called molecular farming. And some of these companies are exploring how can they grow these key animal growth factors in crops, whether it's the tobacco crop or barley or any other crop of interest. Imagine if you have farmers right now who are growing fields of crops for, for animal feed for the current animal for the current animal livestock ecosystem. If you could transition those farmers from growing animal feed crops to crops to feed these cells where there's and, and then you harvest these cell these crops and you extract the growth factors, essentially converting these farmers and livestock players from animal feed players to cell feed players to help integrate them into our current exist ecosystem. If that if those technologies are found to be, be produce the most efficient growth factors and all the companies are saying yes, those are the ones we want to use because they're efficient and they're affordable, then that could be a great narrative of how this field is exist is integrating existing animal livestock supply chains into this one. And I think that'll get a lot of support from livestock players, government players in those particular regions, as as well as um consumers understanding, all right, farmers aren't being ignored here. They're being integrated into the system. Yeah, I've um at the conferences we've been to, I've been surprised by the lack of uh, these the people we're talking about being in, uh, being a part of the conversation because I can like I think there was a comment like oh the cattle ranchers of Oklahoma or whatever aren't going to like what we're building it's like um, and one of them and in my mind I grew I mean I grew up on a farm I've t I have I've know many people who do that type of work and um, if you came in and you said you're going to have to kill less cows and you're going to make more money. And it's gonna be more stable. They're gonna be interested in that. So instead of instead of having to produce and maintain a thousand plus, like thousand thousands of thousands of thousands of cows, it could be something more like Wagyu beef, where they're very specialized, kind of what horses are now in relation to when automobiles came up. And they have this up other source of uh, money they could go as well. I've always felt like it should be more of a partnership, but for some reason it's, it's more antagonistic. I've only ever heard the antagonism when I speak to farmers. They're like, "Oh, that's really interesting." If it did. But I just enumerated like farmers are actually very much scientists. Like if you gave them a new crop, they'll put it in a fourth of their field. They'll test it out. Next year they'll do a half. The next year they'll do a th uh, two thirds. Like they'll they're very much scientists in terms of how they do their business. And so I'm curious and surprised that they to date in terms of the ones that I've seen. And I, I usually look for them. You can kind of tell the people that are doing the type of work. You can just look at their hands. You can and you can tell like how roughed up they are. Um, I, I mean, is that a, a shared experience for you? Have you noticed a, a, a uh, them not really being a part of the conversation. Oh yeah, um, in the bigger picture of how this field has grown, they they probably should be more farmers and livestock players on the at the table, particularly at the farming level, to highlight how we're making a future food system for everyone and including everyone in that vision. Um, being antagonistic to um, conventional players isn't going to help anyone win. Um, we, we we grow we all grow together. You can't just leave you can't just leave someone behind and pretend it's going to work out work out for you. Um, I, I think in that way, there's one group in Netherlands actually called Respect Farms. Ara van Aelen, she's incredible. She runs that organization, and her, her main goal is to explore this idea of decentralized bioreactor and cell culture meat production. How to integrate existing cattle players into the future of meat with cell agriculture. It's, it's a conversation that will likely evolve further as we move along, but we definitely have those conversations and engage them today. Hi, I'm a player trying to use cells to produce meat in the future. You use animals right now to produce meat. How can we engage and work together to make sure every to 
make sure we, we're integrating existing meat players into the future of food. Yeah, I think of all the technology that's going on right now, or over the last like 200 years, when something new like this happens, like there's the automobile and the horse analogy. Um, I think this is one of the few ones where there's really not that there shouldn't really be that much disruption. Like I can imagine like West Virginia being like a cold place. And as people move away from coal, it's like, okay, now that people aren't really gonna make money there anymore. But with this stuff, people, if anything, people have more agency and more control over what they produce and how they uh, contribute to the web and uh, making it even more local. And there's a lot of studies where it's like, if you put $20 like in a farmer's market that gets taxed locally versus going down to a Walmart where the tax goes to like a corporate thing in like uh, uh, New Jersey and they don't get taxed as much, like more of that tax goes to your local uh, community, which then puts it at a uh, uh, schools, uh, police and, uh, you know, education, all those libraries and whatnot. Um, so I think this is one of those scenarios that when as it gets more in and adopted, I think it's actually going to benefit more local communities, more uh, places where like, um, like in the country, everyone talks about how like everyone's moving to the cities. We don't really move to the cities anymore with this paradigm. You can you can this have all true. the benefits of a city in the country. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you do, we definitely need to explore more ways to integrate um, conventional um, farmer farm player, farmer players in the livestock industry into this future food space. Um, the idea you mentioned right now, decentralized production, that could be a great way to definitely do that. Initially, we, have, we will likely see, initially it might be a way before we see that, because lots of companies right now, what they envision is initially scaling up production to large centralized facilities just to prove that this field can be economically viable at, at, at that larger scale. And then moving forward, we can actually explore the idea of decentralized local production down the road where we can have, like you just mentioned, a, a local ranch that has cattle as well as a bioreactor there as well, producing cell cultured meat alongside, alongside the cattle. Hmm. a way of integrating both worlds yeah um i wonder what would be the cost cost differential if you did a bunch of partnerships versus just had a centralization uh, like two startups one's doing uh distributed in let's say iowa illinois and like i don't know wyoming for some reason versus like one that's centralized in san francisco the the cost of the area alone is going to improve the 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 margin significantly i wonder actually what would be the cost differential in terms of like at the end of the day investors just want to make sure that the vision and the money is good. And so I imagine distributed would potentially be less money, especially if you can like build it in the Midwest versus on the coast, because the coast are just so, so, I mean, for what you're, what people pay out on the coast to the Midwest, you could be like a king of a king. Like you'd be the guy making fun of a king. Like that's, that's how much things are cheap out here. Um, I'm curious, uh, has anyone punched those numbers in? Has anyone looked, done like an analysis and seen like, here's what we, this is like, this is how much you can produce from one centralized location that's this size. And if you looked at the production decentralized, how much they would make and what the costs would be. So on the idea of the costliness of being in the coast, I was recently in California for the Culture Meat Symposium. And I went to Chipotle while I was there. And I wanted to treat myself, added guac to my dish, $20. And I was very surprised by that cost point. So, but you're right. Um, building a large scale facility in a, in a coast area would be quite, would be quite costly. 
Um, I imagine as many of these companies look to scale up to get to that large scale facility, they're going to move away from the coast and move into probably near the Midwest, frankly, where our current we already recognized as the breadbasket breadbasket region, right? So that way, land would be likely less costly, but also in terms of distribution and transportation, you can reach a lot more of the country that way within a 24-hour drive. So we likely see more companies set up away from the coast or away from the big cities when they need that giant facility with a lot of land and they want to cut costs down. In terms of the cost difference between a larger centralized facility or a decentralized small scale, a, a consultancy group last year called CE Delft made a techno-economic analysis exploring how much that could cost. And their conclusion was for a larger scale 10 kiloton cultured meat facility, the cost of that to produce would be $450 million. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That th- there's, there's yet to be any studies done on the cost of a decentralized smaller scale facility facilities but if the cost of a larger centralized facility is going to be that big um it, it implies it implies that you need to address some of the major technical challenges in making that viable before you can explore a distributed smaller scale cost cost point hmm. well if anyone listening is a, a nerd and uh, uh looking to get a phd in something uh please do a phd in this and then send me that thesis um that would so be when- great to read Oh, also, I uh, send it to you as well. Uh, you probably do a co-posting on your website. Uh, actually, in terms of your website, we talk about integrating different par- uh, parties that are non-sell uh, aggy, uh, like the farmers, the ranchers, etc. And when it when it comes to the internet, if I'm trying to learn something about sell ag, I just go to your website. So, what are your plans for integrating them? Like, do you have? Um, I'm sure you've. I mean, you've, in this conversation, I can tell that you have uh, some passion around this subject. So. For someone who is like such a tentpole for the industry, what are your plans for integrating these different uh, parties into the into the conversation? Hey, appreciate that, Lil. So appreciate that you are reader and check out the Salagri website quite a bit. In terms of integrating all these different players, I like Salagri is the main platform that whether you're a food producer, government official, or any other party that works in the food ecosystem, um, Salagri has been one of the portals where many of these players first read about this ecosystem and understand what it is. And they usually reach to me afterwards explaining, all right, I'm a food player in this part of the world. I'm interested in this technology. How can I help? And then we explore different opportunities like, all right, this where you are, you're specializing in this this specific sector that, that relates to the pharma industry. Have you, have you considered exploring um, ingredient inputs for the cell culture media formulation? What do you say about that? And for example, through conversations like that, we've, I've been able to meet a lot of different players and help them integrate their current food play or farmer play into this ecosystem. So typically because, because it's one of the first websites that people come to, I've been able to meet a lot of different people and try to help them integrate into this field. I could also see um, like blog posts or interviews where you sit down with like a sell startup and, a, and like a, a rancher and just have a conversation about like how they could help each other. That would, I think that would boom. And I, I want like in, in the footnotes, Lowell, Lowell was this idea, but- uh, um, you, you, You'd be the one moderating that. <laughs> yes, I, I would do it. I, uh, I, I even know the farmers, but uh, the, I actually, been, I've been thinking about doing more interviews with like contrasts where like a, like a like a religious person with an atheist or like a scientist 
with a, a person who didn't finish high school and just like have a conversation about life. But because um, I think like contrasts are fun, like hot and cold. Um, there's a, a food scientist that uh, designed a way for you to like in your mouth, roughly, you feel like one temperature or one sensation or taste versus other tastes, like in terms of your temperature. Um, he found a way to make your mouth feel hot and cold at the same time, like using like he was like a bio engineer. Uh, anyways, we'll, we'll get a sidetrack. Uh, basically, I, I look forward to seeing these type of things um, on your website. Uh, in terms of nonprofits, because I know you're, I believe you're, you have your own in terms of the one in Canada, right? Or yeah, so that's right. I'm part of the co-founding team of a nonprofit in Canada called Cell Agriculture Canada. Um, like the name suggests, the goal of that nonprofit is to advocate and raise awareness of the cell agriculture field across Canada, because compared to the U.S., the U.K., the U.K. or most of Europe, cell agriculture is still relatively unknown in Canada. So the goal of that nonprofit is to help raise awareness of the field and let people know there that this field exists up, exists, and you can become part of this ecosystem. Well, um, if anyone is interested in the in the, what we're talking about and is in the Midwest, we could form our own. We'll call it the Heartland. <laughs> so like, it's about integrating all the players. But uh, the I've, one thing I've thought about, because especially when we're talking about New Harvest, they've generated a lot of IP, but they uh, generally have just made it open. Um, but I, I, I've, I've really thought like a, a different model would be that we have these a uh, couple of nonprofits that develop the some of the, like a lot of startups are just reinventing the wheel, like the serum, the 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 processes and stuff like that, where they develop some of the standards for the industry, and instead of just completely making it open source, like open source, but like a percentage getting kicked back to them, but like what universities and like you like Yale does this, Harvard does this, and so using that type of model, you could be generating so much good for the industry, but also like tapping a little bit back into your organization so you can continue to do that feedback loop of, of good. And I, I noticed with New Harvest, they're always having like funding issues. So I, must, I feel like they should do this. But uh, what do you think about that that method? Is there is there a reason why? Um, I mean, you're the one of the one of the big wigs at a nonprofit. Is there a reason why like nonprofits don't do that in this space? Don't like have a little bit like Yale and Harvard and all these other big players will do to people where they develop the IP, push it out there, just get a percentage, and then keep supporting people. I'm not sure of any nonprofits that actually have worked working that model around IP. That's quite interesting. But I will say New Harvest as a nonprofit, they're the ones who built this whole ecosystem. They do incredible yeah. work for the cell agriculture field. And the whole idea of trying to build a base for a brand new novel ecosystem in terms of a research base, New Harvest were the ones who built that. So yeah. by making all the IP they've so a step back, New Harvest funds PhD researchers and helps them establish, helps them establish, establish and answer some of the key questions people have about this ecosystem, from cell culture media to cell line to scaffolding. Um, New Harvest research fellows have done an incredible job in establishing all that um, key research, and they make and they do a great job making all that those research papers open access, mm -hmm. and. Because of that research, they've established a base of which every other company has built upon. So I think that's the key, that's the role that they they focused on building this entire ecosystem. And through more research, through more research that becomes open access, like what New Harvest has been supporting this whole time, we, we can likely get to the point where through open through open access research, the whole field realizes, all right, hang on, through these openly available papers this is the best way to build bioreactors or this is the best subculture media solution. We, we don't have to spend all that money in-house trying to do our own R&D to develop our own um, product. 
there's an open access resource right there that is the best way to move forward. And that, and that can move this whole field forward as a result of that. Um, I think because this field's been relatively early on, um, starts to emerge at the same time the research ecosystem has been is being built for this field. Companies have been forced to um, spend lots of their funding to develop to do R and D in house to develop their own technologies and IP as a consequence to figure out how to make this field scale and viable. But through work of nonprofits like New Harvest and even like Goodwin Institute doing supporting public research and making it open access for this field, so eventually get to the point where academia may find the optimal solutions for this field to move forward. And that, and what's that phrase? Um, a rising tide lifts all ships, lifts, lifts all ships. That could happen for this field. No, I, I agree. It's been very beneficial the way they've been doing it. I, I think that it's still right. If anything, it accelerates the raise in the tide because they can more uh, sustainably develop the field. Because right now they have to like every year go hat in hand, depending on like how, you know, the certain like deals where they like over several years, people donate like a quarter million, quarter million a year or something like that. Um, it's less of a sustainable model. Uh, if it's just like all, like if anything, like the, the best, like one of the arguments I'd say for that model is they're designing themselves to be obsolete after a certain period of time. But um, if they had a feedback mechanism, like what these big universities do where they just get a small percentage, but still have it open source. Um, and, and people can read it and do all that stuff as well. Like there's layers to it. Um, I think that would, accelerate things so they'd have more cash to uh, support more research to support more fund fundamental things so then um you just have more experts in it i think most most of the ceo most of the the technical leads for this industry came out of new harvest programs and you know kate kruger uh, is one of the big uh you know uh, nerds that trained a lot of them uh it's like uh when you if you ever go to like a phd like a, a university's office you can see, like some people have like a, a lineage of them like being teachers uh like the like heirs of like uh darwin or something because like darwin taught someone and then that person taught someone and then the, that's there so it's fun to see like most people like one generation removed from kate and new harvest um i, I imagine it would just accelerate i don't think it would uh decrease it unless um you see something i don't like why would it uh decrease the rising of the tide if you had a like a harvard type ip structure but still open open source you can you'd have the best of both worlds like it's like 99% open, open source. It's yeah. uh, still uh, qualitatively, should be qualitatively cheaper. Yeah, good question. I'm not sure if one can develop IP that that, that one licenses as well as being open source. Um, I, I can't say I've looked too much into that, but in my mind, those two things can be can be contrasting because one, one, one implies you're not being open with everything to develop the IP. Yeah. Well, I know with tech, you can make some open source and still um make money from it at the same time if they just make things publicly accessible and then if you want to use it you just pay a percentage on it i think that'd be fine but i'm sure there's a lawyer out there who could set it up uh better but i think my point is i, I think that'd be a better structure because then uh, you can more sustainably grow things um if you do that with you should test that out you, you like if you can make canada's bigger than uh, new harvest then we'll know it works um, <laughs> it'd be funny as well if the canadians finally beat the americans or something other than war can, uh, canada beat us once technically Wow. Yeah, not really. It was more the British, but I'll give I'll give you guys credit. You don't have much else to look forward to nowadays. Uh, there's a lot of negative stuff <laughs> the going Canadians on. Canadians there. were there. Yeah, you got the the mooses and the maple syrup. Um, is there? Uh, I mean, I said we are talking about um, people breaking apart in terms of like focusing on different things. Do you see regions specifying in terms of the supply chain? Like, 
like we talk about this about Middle East, where it's like, oh, this per this place could be uh, the serum, this place could be, you know, one aspect of whatever. Um, but do you see geographically areas uh, specializing? Or is it even in terms of like the supply chain, it's still already uh, decentralized? Like there's no, there, it's already kind of like taken on the model we've been talking about throughout this conversation and the benefits of it where everyone is in the Middle East building the whole thing. Everyone in Europe is building the whole thing. America's building the whole thing. Um, but yeah, how are you seeing the actual um, implementation of these things in terms of specialization uh, throughout the world? Yeah, so what we, we've been seeing at Stellagri is the idea that companies all around the world or players around the world generally have been trying to build everything themselves. Mm. Um, the whole full stack, so to speak, of all the components to make the meat as well. Having said that, in the last few years, we've been seeing a lot more companies pop up all around the world, focusing on one specific part of that supply chain, of that stack to produce cell-cultured food products. Um, it's hard to, because this field relies so much on scientific research and R and D. It, it's not necessarily you don't. It's not necessarily resilient. It does not necessarily rely on one area in particular to specialize in media or scaffolding, for example. It just relies on the the sci scientists and engineers wherever you are. Um, however, having said that, it is possible that scientists and and startups based in certain parts of the world may have access to local plants or crops that may be ideal or best suited to become a, a source of the cell culture media formulation, for example. That, that's always possible. In terms of um, geographic breakdowns, I'm currently in the UK. And what's, in, what's been quite interesting over here is we've seen quite a few startups come out of universities here as spinouts that are all specializing in one certain part of the supply chain, which is which is quite interesting to see um compared to compared to the us when many of the initial startups were all trying to be full stack players here in the uk many of the initial startups all try to be specialized in one part of the ecosystem whether that's bioreactor design cell culture media formulation or or some other specific part of building this field up it's, it's, it's quite interesting it's just probably is a probably a response to the academic and start spin out culture here to focus on one part of the ecosystem and focus on that and the academic expertise. But generally speaking, there is no uh, specific geographic breakdown in terms of where certain supply chain players are based. Yeah, I think uh, I will add, one... though, oh, I will add, though, if you're if you're a company looking for a supply chain partner, who, where might you want to who where might you might want to find that player? If, if you're between, all right, I want to partner with startup A or B for component X, but startup B is based in a country that has regulatory approval and company A is not, what, is it possible you might be more likely to partner with company B that's based in the country that has regulatory approval and that's where you, cause that's where you want to launch your first product? Um, it could, some, ge some geographic influence may play a role there, but beyond that, Ge geography at this point hasn't shown to have any impact on that. I could see the molecular farming that you were referencing earlier being one of the one of the ways that things are limited. If there's just like a scope that things like wheat can be grown in or like cocoa beans can be grown in, uh, that would be potentially the limiting factor of uh, some of these plants. Like if you can do it with corn, then I mean you're pretty much good at everywhere. But <laughs> if there is like you know like a like a Middle Eastern weed that's like really good, like weed weed, not like the smoking of weed. And uh, that's like really good for this type of stuff. 
Um, I could see that being a limiting factor, like literally ge the geographical uh, climate uh, outside of like, um, then again, if, if you if you don't need that much of it and you can make it in high quality. Um, I see that process similar to how insulin is made. Originally, we, uh, I believe, had to like mulch uh, dog livers or something to make enough insulin. And then now we make it with like um, yeast, make a lot, like a ton of uh, insulin through yeast. And so uh, it'd be interesting if, if we need these types of different uh, building blocks to use a similar like bacteria, but in this case, it plants like a more macro level organism to, which is doing a lot of stuff there. I haven't, I, honestly, this is the first time I've heard about this. I'm actually really interested in it. I'm going I'm to Google a lot of it after this. <laughs> Cause yeah, it's, that's, it's, I mean, it's when, you, when you look yeah. at, yeah, when you look at crops to like molecular farming to grow certain inputs for this field, you're absolutely right. Um, geography can dictate where those plants grow if you want to have a local source of that ingredient as opposed to shipping it in. So that could play a role. Um, beyond, th beyond that, it's hard. We haven't seen the real geography plays just yet. Um, who knows, maybe vertical farming or, or, or greenhouse technology can address that geography ch challenge for growing certain crops. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of the things that, like one of the other benefits, like everyone's talking about inflation and stuff right now, like, oh, the food price is going up and whatnot. It, there's less hands touching sell ag because there's, I mean, you don't have to raise the animal. You don't have to distribute that, like, you, especially if you use a decentralized model. Like, I mean, like the Midwest is interesting. Like Tennessee is like one of the most, uh, one of the largest Amazon fulfillment centers, even though it's like in the heartland. Um, it's like, you, you would think like, oh, you want to be on the coast to be at New York. It's like, nope, you want to be in the West. But I mean, like the Chicago is like the butcher capital of the world because ever all the ranchers came into Chicago. It could have been St. Louis. Haha, St. Louis, you didn't want to do trains. They all, they all came to Chicago and they got shipped out uh, east. But um, I think there's there's less hands touching it. So then uh, in, like just in terms of manual labor, um, if, if anything uh, fluctuates in terms of uh, the, the cost of living, your pay, uh, food, any of those things, like it wouldn't really, like the, the things that affect the cost of food, I don't think would affect sell egg as much as it does uh, normal agriculture, like significantly, where like you could see normal agriculture fluctuating uh, by the price, maybe like 10% or whatever. I mean, there's some food prices that like tripled in cost. Sell egg, as it's, once it's been brought down to like a level that it's uh, cost effective, uh, it seems like it'd be relatively stable. Yep, I'd, I'd agree with that. Similar to the idea of controlled environment agriculture, vertical farming, once that can scale up and the inputs are are are, are reliable, um, the cost of that will not change fr from year to year, despite whatever the weather might be around it. Similar for cell-cultured food products for meat or dairy or any of those components. If because, because it will be made in controlled environments, it would not be susceptible to um, impact of the environment around them, whether that could, whether that's, for example, any zoonotic disease that, that, that causes a whole farm to um, call their whole species, their whole, their whole cattle, cattle, for example, um, this field would not be susceptible to that. Um, the only possibility for that could be if any of those ingredients inputs for the cells to grow, if that, if the price of that varies he heavily, that could impact um, cost of this field from year to year. But other than that, you're right. You, this field will not be susceptible to the same um, supply chain challenges if done either all vertically integrated for a company or having resilient supply chain to make sure that that would not be a problem. Hmm. Uh, I did, an additional benefit is like one of the things that bothers me about meat, for instance, is like the theoretical possibility of uh, getting mad cow, the Klein Jacobs uh, prion, prion disease that'll just like wipe you out in six months. Um, I 
they already have tests where they could they could tell like if there is that uh, prion in a blood sample or a serum sample. Um, it's like small scope, but I mean we're talking about small scope right now as well. So I, I think there'd be less like things that, that affecting the animal in these horrible ways uh, going on to humans as well. So it's it'd be safer for humans just in, in terms of disease. Uh, and if like something were to happen to like one like uh, bioreactor, like I mean it's already self-contained, like it's already like quarantined be able to just like uh quality tester that that's what that's what i think is really interesting about this i think it just like we've been talking about it raises uh all the tides um which is really exciting if you were to as you look out in the future what do you um what do you like we like opened a window in four years what do you think is going to be here in terms of like actual production instead of just like uh r d i know one thing we talked about is how like many people are like bottle label uh cell agriculture startups businesses but they end up producing more of a plant-based thing so do you see that trend reversing? Do you see that trend uh, uh, continuing? Like what, what, what does the window of the cell agriculture field look like? Yeah, so four years from now, that would be exciting. So far, only Singapore has given regulatory approval for the sale of cell cultured meat. Hopefully within in that four year window, we see a lot more countries getting approval for that. Um, many eyes are looking at the US right now for re re regulatory approval. Um, Personally, I think the next place to, to give regulatory approval will be in Asia still, and likely, likely the next few countries, whether that's Japan, South Korea, or even one of the countries in the Gulf in the Middle East, will be one of the next few spots. And then eventually it'll come to regulatory approval will come in the US and one day in the distant future, Europe as well. Hmm. But that's something I imagine we'll see a lot more of in the next four years where government's getting on board, realizing all right, this field's worked well. It's come to market in Singapore. How can we learn from that and, and, and apply that to where we are? That's one thing I imagine. Um, product launches will be something we see as well to that end. A few companies right in the last few months have announced plans to set up a partnership with, with facilities in Singapore to, to launch there by 2023 or 2024. So like we see a few more product launches. To touch on the idea you mentioned about blended products, Many companies, when they look to come to market right now, are looking to blend their cell cultured meat or fat cells with plant protein to help address the cost challenges of, of a 100% cell cultured meat product because of how expensive it is today without a scaled up supply chain and without addressing some of those technical challenges entirely just yet. So for at least the first generation or two of products, there will definitely, there will most definitely or very likely be um, blended or, or hybrid with plant protein to address those cost challenges, as well as some of the initial taste and texture challenges a new food product like this may have. But moving forward, as companies address those taste and texture and scale of challenges, we might get closer to a 100% cell-based product by a four-year window from now. Perhaps not entirely, but much closer. Mm -hmm. And the, the next thing I say is going to be quite important for this field in the next four years is partnerships, partnerships with traditional food players who can help these companies that are essentially producing just an ingredient for an end food product get get to the market. I mentioned Perfect Day earlier. They they've been really good making partnerships with a range of ice cream and other ice cream and other range of food players that use dairy proteins in their ingredient ingredient supply chain. And without those partnerships, um, it would it'll be a challenge to come to market. So we'd like to see a lot more of those partnerships to not just help companies scale up production, but also on the just downstream distribution side and, 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 and product um, development to make sure that 
these salt cultured ingredients, salt cultured foods become part of our food, food supply chain and part of our future food system. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a very exciting future. What, one element yeah, I was really thinking is. of as, yeah, it, it's a great time to be alive. I think sometimes people are like, oh, there's so many bad things going on. It's like, I don't know, pick your, pick your, pick your thing and then focus on it. Um, the, another thing, a benefit to this uh, technology, and I, I don't know why I haven't thought about it before this moment, but um, like you have like guaranteed, like no slaves or any indentured type people making this stuff. You know, like right now, there are a lot of places like like chocolate, for instance, like a lot of them are, are like literally being made in like with like slave labor. Um, where most of this stuff is like highly technical. So it'll be a good job for people. It'll be a good opportunity. Um, and we'll have something like that's end to end, just great for people. Like I, I imagine the, like the people in like Africa, um, I think there's like 30 million slaves in the world right now, which is like, uh, from a number standpoint, the highest it's ever been, but as a statistic, it's the smallest it's ever been. <laughs> so, um, like in terms of like how many slaves exist in like, uh, in the world. I think that's a really interesting thing as well. I know like we talked the ethical benefits to the animals, but I think the ethical benefits and the moral benefits to humans is also something really interesting when we can really excise that tumor of slavery from and just make it a, uh, an archaic piece of our past, something to learn from, but no longer influence our future. I think that'd be really powerful because I don't think when it comes to uh, the research I've done on slave labor as it relates to like what it does to the world, it's mostly in agriculture. We're, you know, like it's mostly just working fields. Um, so this type of technology really could do a lot um, I don't know what they would do instead, but, but they could have jobs. Like, it's like, oh, this doesn't work anymore. We have to give them jobs or something. Um, I don't know how that transition yeah. works. Yeah, I agree with that. When you look at how using, producing food directly from cells, it, it, it involves a lot, a lot less labor. Um, to run these facilities, you may, you, you'll require less people than a conventional animal food production. And while that, while that can, can lead to some challenges, it, it, it results in a more controlled environment and and you can prevent prevent these human right atrocities sweet so uh i have uh some personal questions and then we'll be oh, like nice. we, we should be uh there are just letting you know it's cool if you need to take a pause but so the first one is uh what what does happiness mean to you so i, I i'll preface this and give you a second to think about it um i thought happiness was like a uniform thing in terms of like what people think happiness is but I've been asking people this and mo there's actually quite variability in terms of like you, you would think that what you think happiness is, is what it's not, it's not the same as everyone else's. It's really interesting. So what, when you think of happiness, what is it to you? How do you experience it? Happiness to me. I like that question. I'll think about that for a second. My first thought that comes to mind is happiness is community. Um, the idea of working with, with a group, with a collective community to towards something. Community could be friends, family to help celebrate um, a loved one's accomplishment or, or togetherness that way. Community is my answer for that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a good, it's a good answer. Um, is there um, something you're struggling with right now? Like a personal, professional, is there something that you're working through? Either like a problem you're having like, uh, you're like angry all the time <laughs> or you don't have enough love in your life. I don't know. Uh, what, you got something that you're, you're working through right now. Yeah, someone asked me this question the other day about challenges with running cell agri. And I, I thought, I thought about that. And one of the main challenges I'm having is actually a good problem for the field entirely. 
when I began Celagri, you know, back in 20, back at the end of 2017 and through, and through those early days, it was easy to keep in, on top of everything going on in this field. It was a handful of companies and everything was right there to see. Now this field has, has exploded across the world. You have scientists and entrepreneurs and companies all over doing some incredible work in this field. At times it can feel like a challenge and overwhelming trying to keep up with everything. But you know, in the bigger picture, this is a good thing for the field. Hmm. Well, you could um, like have your own type of like, uh, I don't know what the New Harvest does, but like the, like the PhD researchers, there's other people that want to learn how to do what you do. You could take people from college or take people with interest and help them re be introduced into it. I mean, there's thousands of people uh, across the Midwest that would love to probably help with that. I don't know. You can make like an apprenticeship program or like an internship program or um, an editing program. Like there's like so many people that actually would like to, would like to legitly do what you do and versus like the TikTok version where like everyone's dancing, uh, <laughs> which is kind of what, uh, how things are now. Um, you can do something like that. Good, good idea. Make it there. You. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. The, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, he wrote many books and he was, did a lot of things and I was, I was like, Oh, that's interesting. So I read about him and it's, uh, all of his, all of his writing, he had a team of like 20 people who would research things and just consolidate it for him. And he would take that consolidation and he would translate it out. And he, and there was like a lot of the writing they'd help with too. So you're like a, like a lone ranger right now. But if you built the community around yourself, just in terms of your business or in terms of how you work, I think it would make it easier for you to do your job, even in terms of like uh, information aggregating, idea generating, um, distribution, all these other things. Um, so you, you could be like Winston Churchill. I don't know if you're a fan of the guy. You're in the UK. So, I mean, I don't know. Mixed, mixed blessing. This is true. I am in the UK. And I like that idea of having a team, having a team of fact checkers like that. Do you say you had a team of 50 people? He had a lot. I mean, it's a lot. It's 20... He had, I think he had like 20 permanent, no matter what year, oh, wow. time of the year, just working on stuff for him. He had a lot. Not bad. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. I will I will add a caveat to anyone out there that's like, oh, I have to do everything by myself. He was born, like, he, he was like first name basis with the Kings. Like, he was born nobility. He was like a, a rich guy. So it's like, it's fine if like, he was like, some people are born in like first base, second base, third base, whatever. He was born like looping the, the he was just like victory lapping repeatedly. So like, it, it, it's a little easier for him to do stuff. So it's fine if it's like harder for everyone else. Um, uh, so no books, no, uh, resources. What's the future of cell agri, agri going to be? Ooh. So the goal of cell agri has been to become one of the main news and insights platform that people can go to, to learn anything, everything they want to about cell agriculture. As this field continues to evolve and grow, it's going to be a lot more information that people will need to know about this field. What are the latest insights? about commercialization for this field. Where can I go find these products in the future? Um, so Stoggy plans to grow this field. That's how I see this go, this field, the field growing and how I see Salagri growing alongside it to keep up with it. And then um, I will, like sometimes I, I, I ask this question because there's so many things we could talk about, but is there anything that we could have talked about that we didn't talk about in relation to this field? They feel like people need to know or just in fun. We can have fun talking about it. Yeah. Um, generally, when I talk talk about this field, um, it's very easy to get excited about this field and try. Uh, get, it's very easy to get excited about this field because we are all passionate about making a sustainable food system. But for those who, who are not inside this ecosystem, it can be communication 
is going to be key because it, because it can be hard to understand what this is really all about. Um, when, when it comes to any novel technology, communication is key, and with food, it matters so much more. So it's it's, it's not just a, a, it's not just about explaining how this field works, how we can take a few cells and make food out of it, but explaining the why behind it. Why are scientists and businesses wanting to make meat out of cells when we have a cow right there? Like that context is going to be everything for this field moving forward. And communication is going to be one of the biggest ways to address that, whether you're talking to consumers, parents, farmers, governments, communication is going to be a really key play, key play in that. I think if, if uh, my suggestion would be like, go to the example that makes your point. I think the seafood, the Alaskan crab fishermen, uh, I mean, the people that keep having oil spills, et cetera, that they're making the point why it's so valid, why it's so important. And exactly. then if you look at it as a microcosm in terms of like how you can implement it, I think it makes it really easy. One of the benefits, benefit negatives, it's like, eh, it depends on what you're doing. But one of the interesting things about the United States is like we have a, a federated system. So states can do stuff that the, without the federal government really having to say so in it. Um, then the, there's some things that the federal government is going to say no matter what you do. But uh, so you could go to Alaska. Like Alaska has so much uh, oil money coming in that they literally uh, give a dividend to their people, for instance. So them they basically have like a surplus that they give back to the people so you could uh you could have alaska being pretty active and uh pioneering government uh, uh cooperation and they'd have they have a lot of reason to want to do it as well considering like a, a huge section of their economy is now out of, uh, out of a job um that'd be my suggestion i think go, go with like the win and it, it, it's a evocative and makes the point cows you'll always have people like well there's already so many cows so there's always beef on the, the aisle or whatever and then I think the point's just like the cows become way goobie for some, but um, that's how I would suggest it. Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found, subscribe, tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. That's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.